This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Before we get started, we're excited to announce our continued collaboration with Studio Sweden. I've been using the tray model for almost two months now, including six airplane rides, and they are my new favorite headphones, which is a pretty big deal for me since I always used to prefer over-the-ear headphones. Oftentimes, bulky over-the-ear models do not mix with my hipster glasses, and I love that I could wear these earbuds all day with no discomfort. Plus, since they are designed for active lifestyles, which is not me, but I love them anyway, uh, they never fall out. I swear I would forget I was wearing them if not for the constant stream of amazing sounding music and podcasts that I fill my day with. I also love that these earbuds have sound transparency, which means that even though the audio is clear as day, I can still hear my boarding number when I'm waiting at the airport. Uh, we're partnering with Studio Sweden to offer, based on a true crime listeners, 15% off their purchase using our promo code BASED. In addition to the tray model, they have a variety of corded and Bluetooth earbuds and on-ear models, all with super sleek modern designs. They also ship worldwide totally free. Check out their products at studio.com or use the link in our show notes. And don't forget to use our promo code BASED for 15% off. you get mad when listening to true crime? Well, so do I. If you want a weekly true crime podcast that says what you're thinking, then grab a beer and pull up a deck chair. This is Cambo from True Crime Island, another true crime podcast, and maintain the rage with me. Visit truecrimeisland.com where you can download or stream each episode. Plus, there's links to iTunes and social media. And as I always say... Don't forget to delete your browser history. This is True Crime Island. Hello, and welcome to a promo for Blood on the Rocks, a podcast on all things creepy, morbid, or otherwise dark. I'm your host, Axel Taylor. Join me and various guest hosts as we cover a whole load of subjects. We'll show you the world of serial killers, accidents, hauntings, black metal, and more. Find us on iTunes, Stitcher, and all those other fancy podcast platforms. Alcohol and profanity content may vary. Two years after the success of 1974's The Texas Chainsaw Massacre, director Toby Hooper and screenwriter Kim Hinkle joined forces for a follow-up movie. Once again, they searched for inspiration in the annals of true crime history, and they found it in Joe Ball. Following the repeal of Prohibition, Joe Ball opened a tavern outside of Elmendorf, Texas, and stocked a pit in the back with live alligators to put on gruesome shows for his customers. Soon after, the pretty young barmaids working at his tavern began to disappear. This is based on a true crime.
I'm Chelsea, and I love true crime. And I'm David, and I love horror movies. And welcome to this week's episode of Based on a True Crime. Uh, so before we got started, you heard, uh, well, you heard our advertisement for Studio Sweden, but you also heard two promos for um, some podcasts, some really rad podcasts, both of them uh, not U.S.-based. So branch out. Uh, I mean, hopefully you're already listening to True Crime Island hosted by Cambo. And if not, uh, get on top of that. He's kind of a big deal. The other podcast is for Blood on the Rocks, which is hosted Hosted by Akshay, and it's a really cool uh, kind of newer UK-based podcast. And I love that they cover some uh, some UK-based crimes that I have never heard of. It's super interesting, so please check them out. We have one more promo for you, and this is a special one because this is our friends at Lust Mordia, and they are putting on a live show, a live podcast show in Columbus. It's Saturday, March 24th, which means sadly David and I won't be able to go because we're going to be at Horror Hound, but if you are local to Columbus, um, check them out. It's going to be at Cafe Kerouac at 8 p.m. This is their promo. Hi, I'm Lucy Mortem. And my name is Ginny. And we invite you to join us every week on Las Mordia, where we discuss our favorite true crime topics. But not just true crime, any and all things dark and mysterious that pertain to the human psyche. Cults, conspiracy, weird pop culture. But hey, we're not professionals and we're often inappropriate. We really bank on you finding that charming, though. (laughs) So turn out the lights, lock the doors, and find us on your favorite podcast app. Yeah, and it's it's an amazing podcast, um, pretty new. I know we've talked about them a bunch on the show, but I'm not going to stop. So hosted by Lee, Ginny, and Derek, and I am sure that their live show is going to be a blast. Yes, this is very cool. Live shows are exciting. We do have some uh, reviews on iTunes. We have Akshay uh, from Blood on the Rocks podcast. We have GS7489 from Eye for an Eye. We have Pepper Ashley. I am Atticus Finch. The Atticus Finch. Yeah. Wow. That's pretty amazing. I know. We have Cookie Girl 07, Ohio Bookworm and 915. Yes. And in the review, Ohio Bookworm requested that we cover uh, Seven and Lizzie Borden. So we've had other requests for Lizzie Borden on Facebook. We have. I think that would be a, a really cool one to cover. And uh, I mean, seven might be a stretch. Maybe we could pick out seven killers to cover that <sighs> embody each of the uh, the seven deadly sins. I love that movie, though. Whew, that's a scary one. What's in the box, David? Oh, what's in the box? It's Gwyneth Paltrow's head. Ooh. Spoiler alert. Spoiler alert. <laughs> <laughs> We have Kate from Ignorance Was Bliss and Prove It Podcast. On Facebook, thank you, Charles, Jamie, Steve, and Amanda for utilizing our review feature there. That's uh, that's pretty cool. So thank you. Yeah, I always love that because I get the notification straight to my phone. It's very exciting. Um, but yeah, thank you so much to all of our new reviewers. It's been a excellent review haul, let's say. We're actually so close to 100 reviews on iTunes. So if you've you know been on the fence about reviewing us, man, I would take three one-star reviews if it gets us over that 100 mark. <laughs> Um, leave your I'm, full I'm kidding. Name. I'm kidding. Yeah. I was going to say, leave your full name and address so that we can find <laughs> you and um, send you stickers. Yes. Yeah, that's it. So Teaser Tuesday this week, uh, we had correct guesses on Facebook and Instagram. On Facebook, we had Thomas C., who guessed the movie and the crime uh, very, very soon after I posted it. Yeah. Um, he's an expert. I was wondering about that based on the art. Yeah. Really curious. Yeah. And actually, uh, Charles recognized it, and he mentioned that technically there is more than one correct answer for the name of the movie because the movie was released under a number of names which you're probably going to cover yes all right all of those titles we will list here when we get to the film portion 
All right, awesome. I only know one of them, so I'm excited to hear the other ones. All right, cool. And then on uh, on Instagram, we had Chipalicious26, which is Chippy TFT. She's she's moved now. She got on Instagram. I think it's because I was too slow to post it on Twitter. <laughs> So she guessed the uh, movie and then actually uh, Lee from Lust Mordia got the case. Cool stuff. Yeah. You guys are on it. Yeah. So we're going to delve into the true crimes that inspired Toby Hooper's 1976 released in 1977, Eating Alive. This actually works pretty well, I think, as a companion piece to our Texas Chainsaw Massacre episode, because that was our sort of dedication to the late, great Toby Hooper. And when we talk about the film portion, I'll kind of delve into some of his behind the scenes stuff. So excited. I can't wait. I, I know you're excited this week. It's been a while since we've gone straight horror with our movies. I feel like the last one was maybe Natural Born Killers. Maybe. That's like borderline. Yeah. But this is this is a true horror movie. It is. And it is a truly horrible story. Yeah, yeah. The yeah. movie is um it's pretty stylish. It was it was all shot on a sound stage. So we'll go into a lot of the kind of the stuff behind why the movie looks the way it does. But um yeah, we're gonna uh, dive right into the uh the true crime part first so here we go Francis Frank Xavier Ball was born in Bexar County, Texas in 1868. 17 years later, the town of Elmendorf, Texas was established in Bexar County by Henry Elmendorf. Elmendorf may have founded the town, but it was Frank Ball who is credited with uh, really building it up. Elmendorf is located in cotton country, and Frank took the initiative to build a gin, which was used to process the cotton crop. At the same time, a railroad depot was built in town, turning the city into a hub for exporting cotton and clay products. Oh, wow. That's a, like an interesting part in history. All the like industrial sorts of manufacturing and, and products and stuff. Yeah, and it's interesting, especially since moving out to the Midwest, these towns that will kind of pop up when when the timing is just right and then you know eventually sink back down into obscurity so this was kind of when the city was at its prime was this kind of turn of the century period so the the cotton gin that he built uh, made frank really rich but buying and selling farms during the great depression made him even richer he married elizabeth lawler and built the very first stone house in the area to move his family into together the pair had nine children and most grew up to follow their father's footsteps becoming pillars of the Elmendorf community. I think one of them was the first mayor of the town. Another one opened a general store and was the first like postmaster. But one of them grew up into the killer known as the Butcher of Elmendorf or the Alligator Man. Wow, that escalated quickly. Yes, he was not the mayor. <laughs> so uh, Joseph Douglas Ball was born on January 7th, 1896. He was the couple's second child after Frank Jr. Growing up, Joe was known as a bit of a loner, preferring to spend time outdoors rather than socializing with his peers. As he grew older, Joe came to be particularly passionate about guns, honing his skills by practicing for hours every week. His nephew, Bucky Ball, which is just an amazing name. Good alliteration. Yeah. <laughs> no relation to the buck in the movie, which if you've seen the movie, you'll know what I'm talking about. If you haven't seen the movie, you'll know what I'm talking about in about 40 minutes. 
<laughs> so he said of Joe, quote, my uncle could shoot a bird off a telephone line with a pistol from the bumper of his Model A Ford. That's a pretty keen eye and a sure shot. Yep. I can't even imagine because I've never touched a gun. So in 1917, shortly after the United States declared war on Germany and entered World War One, Joe Ball enlisted in the military. He served on the front lines before being honorably discharged in 1919. Joe's brother told Bucky that Joe came back different after the war. He worked for his father for a short time after returning, but when Prohibition began in January of 1920, Joe discovered a new business venture that was ripe in Elmendorf bootlegging. Well, Joe started off selling whiskey from a barrel in the back of his Model A Ford. His business grew to the point where in the mid-20s, Joe saw fit to hire Clifton Wheeler, a young black man, to help out. Although initially hired as a handyman, Clifton ended up doing most of the manual labor and dirty work involved in running the clandestine business. Joe was not very kind to his assistant. Clifton would later say that when Joe was drunk, he liked to shoot his gun at Clifton's feet to make him dance. When Prohibition ended in 1933, Joe decided to turn his career as a bootlegger into a legitimate business and open up a tavern on a small parcel of land off Highway 181, just outside of Elmendorf. The tavern, which he named the Sociable Inn, had a room in front which held a bar, a piano, and tables for customers. In the back, there were two bedrooms. Hubba hubba. I know. I, I got I got very confused at some points doing this research because writers kept throwing around the word orgy when I think they were just meaning like a crazy party with booze. Oh, yeah. Um, I was like, I don't know why they keep using that word. It's like the original reference used it and everyone else was like, orgy, orgy, orgy. And I was like, I'm not putting the word orgy in this podcast. All right. And then I just said it 10 times. We are not going to say orgy. I yeah, promise we're not going to say orgy one more time. Nope, nope, orgy. no orgy. <laughs> well, occasionally Joe hosted cockfights at the bar, much to the delight of his paying customers. Eventually, though, he decided that he needed a bigger draw. There were low waters nearby, which were inhabited by alligators, and Joe got the idea to trap some and keep them at the tavern. He dug a large hole behind the tavern, which he cemented and filled with water. He surrounded the pool with a 10-foot high fence, and he stocked it with five alligators, four of them small and one of them large. And their names were Mosley, Gertrude, Eames, Willow, and Lydia. <laughs> Perfect. Yeah. Perfect, yes. right? Yeah. Willow's the large one. Oh. Those are our cats, by the way. And they Willow are. is the large one. Yeah. To eat everybody. Oh, she would. So the customers loved his new pets, and Saturday nights at his bar were particularly raucous. Patrons would drink excessively and pay money to see any small animal Joe could get his hands on thrown to the alligators to eat, including puppies and kittens, because they all suck. That's terrible. Puppies and kittens, come on. I feel like the hierarchy should be that the cuter animals eat the less cute animals. So it should be like puppies and kittens eating alligators. Does that yeah. make sense? Yes, absolutely. Although his customers loved Joe, he did gain a reputation about town for being a bit creepy, and it's likely that these activities did not help. Another reason his customers, and especially his male customers, quite like Joe and the Sociable Inn, was that he exclusively hired young and attractive women to tend the bar. In 1934, Joe hired 25-year-old Minnie Goddard, and the two entered into a relationship. Minnie was from Seguin, Texas, and she was the youngest of six children born to Maddie and Ernest Goddard. She took well to her job as a barmaid and was skilled at handling overly intoxicated customers, although she did gain reputation as being, quote, a bossy, displeasing, and obnoxious person, which is also my reputation. <laughs> yeah? 
Yeah. That's probably because she did a good job of handling the overly intoxicated customers. Yes. Oh, exactly. For sure. Well, by 1937, Big Minnie, as she came to be known, was essentially running the bar with Joe and Clifton. That year, Joe hired two more young waitresses, 26-year-old Dolores Buddy Goodwin and 20-year-old Hazel Shotzi Brown, which all these women have just the best nicknames. It's pretty good. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Joe was drawn to both women. And despite the fact that Joe threw a bottle at her, Scarring her from her eye to her neck, Dolores returned his love. Wow. How romantic. Yeah, how romantic. She said he was throwing the bottle at someone else and it happened to hit her in the face. All right. Maybe he just has terrible aim. Yeah, as long as he didn't say, I'll spoil those good looks. And so uh, the balancing act Joe was carrying out with three women was made at least one third easier in the summer of 1937 when Minnie mysteriously disappeared. Joe told anyone who would listen that she had run off after giving birth to a black baby. In September, Minnie's family reported her missing. And that same month, Joe married Dolores Goodwin. All right. That sounds very suspicious. Oh, yes. Yes. Well, after they married, Joe confided in Dolores that Minnie hadn't run off. He'd taken her to a beach in Ingleside, Texas, shot her in the head, and buried her in the sand. Dolores did not believe Joe initially, although she did pass the story along to Hazel. Joe and Dolores never talked about Minnie again. Minnie's family pressured police to look into Joe, but there was no evidence that anything had happened to Minnie, let alone evidence that Joe was involved. In January of 1938, Dolores was involved in a serious car accident and her arm needed to be amputated. Around town, rumors persisted that one of Joe's alligators had either bitten it off by accident or Joe had cut it off and fed it to his gators. Which, of course, that rumor is going to fly around. Yeah. A missing limb and you own a bunch of alligators. Very suspicious, yes. Yes. Almost I don't believe the car accident, even though it was a car accident. Yeah. But like, what are the odds? What are the odds? Yeah. Yep. Although still married to Dolores, Joe turned his affections towards Hazel. Hazel was born December 17th of 1916 to parents Hamilton and Emma Brown. In July of 1931, when she was just 14, she married her first cousin, Floyd Wayman Harrison. And on December 30th of 1931, they had a son, Vernon Delmer Harrison. By the time Hazel was working for Joe in 1937, she was divorced from Floyd and there were no reports of her son being involved in the events that were to follow. I wish that there was more information online about these women, but that's really all I could find. I just I imagine that she's not had the best life if you're marrying your cousin when you're 14 and having babies. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, this got to be. So that just makes it like difficult. suck even more. Yep. Well, in April of 1938, Dolores disappeared. A few months later, police approached Joe asking whether he knew anything about the disappearance of 23-year-old Julia Turner. Julia had worked part-time for Joe at the Sociable Inn. Confronted with the fact that Julia had left all of her belongings behind, Joe told police that Julia had gotten into an argument with a roommate and not wanted to return home. So Joe had lent her $500 for the road. In September of 1938, a few days after opening a bank account, Hazel too disappeared without ever retrieving the money from her account. Later that month, a neighbor went to the police and claimed that he saw Joe cutting up a human body and feeding pieces to the alligators. A second man also came forward on September 23rd and reported that Joe had left a barrel in his sister's barn that smelt like death. The following day, Bexar County Deputy Sheriff John Gray and Deputy John Clevenhagen drove to the barn to search for the offending barrel, but it was gone. 
After his sister confirmed that a barrel had indeed been stored there by Joe, they headed to the sociable inn to confront him. The deputies told Joe that they would take him to San Antonio for questioning, and Joe requested that he be given time to drink a beer and close down the bar. All right, a little downtime. Well, the deputies agreed, and they took a seat. Joe finished off his beer and hit the no sale button on the cash register. He then drew a 45 caliber revolver from the drawer and shot himself in the heart, killing himself instantly. So a lot of downtime? Yes, now it's all downtime. Joe Ball was dead, but the investigation into his crimes was only beginning. Police scoured the bar for any clues, and it wasn't long before they found rotting meat in the alligator pen and an axe covered in blood and human hair. Police put pressure on Joe's handyman, Clifton Wheeler, and it wasn't long before he cracked and admitted to his involvement after the fact in two murders. One was Minnie Goddard. Just as Joe had confessed to Dolores, Clifton confirmed to police that Joe killed her on the beach in Ingleside. Of course, his story about her being pregnant with another man's child was a complete fabrication. Minnie was pregnant with Joe's child, and Joe was worried about how this would impact his relationship with Dolores. He planned a day at the beach with Minnie and Clifton, and following an afternoon of swimming and drinking, Joe pointed off in the distance to draw Minnie's attention away. After she turned her gaze in that direction, Joe drew a pistol and shot her in the head. Clifton led police to Minnie's body and also to the body of Hazel. Well, it was Hazel who was being stored in the barrel after being brutally murdered by Joe. The night after the existence of the barrel had been reported to police, Joe enlisted Clifton's help in dismembering and burying her body along the San Antonio River, three miles from Elmendorf. They burned her head in a campfire and left her charred skull in the open. According to Clifton, Hazel had fallen in love with another man who was a regular at the tavern and was planning to leave Joe. When he wouldn't let her go, she threatened to tell police what Dolores had told her about the death of Minnie and accused him of killing Dolores as well. Enraged, Joe killed her by hitting her in the head with a pistol and then shooting her. Clifton served two years for his role in disposing of the two women's bodies. When he was released from prison, he attempted to open his own bar in Elmendorf, but public opinion was so strongly against him that he was run out of town. Among Joe's belongings found in the sociable inn was a scrapbook containing the photos of many young women, which authorities suspected may be a collection of his victims. However, police never found definitive proof of victims beyond the two whose bodies they had found. The meat in the alligator pit was tested, and it, interestingly enough, was found to not be human. Dun, dun, dun. Yeah. Maybe that dun, dun, dun should have been after they found meat in the pit. All right. I feel like this is more like womp womp. Yeah. Some suspected victims, like Julia Turner, were never found, but others were. Dolores Goodwin turned up in San Diego, California, where she had moved to live with her sister and start a new life. Surprised? Yes. Very surprised. Um, when I was doing the research, I was trying to find, uh, you know, w- what happened to her thinking like I was on the um, there's like websites where you could look at like people's gravestones. And I was like, oh, Dolores Goodwin died in 1937 or whatever. And I was like, no, <laughs> nope. Oops. <laughs> yes. Not in, not then, because in a 1957 interview, Dolores maintained that Minnie and Hazel were Joe's only two victims that he never fed anyone to the alligators, saying, quote, Joe wouldn't do a thing like that. He wasn't no horrible monster. Joe was a sweet kind good man and he never hurt nobody unless he was driven to it there were just two murders the juxtaposition of he would never hurt nobody unless he was driven to it there were just two murders like maybe one maybe i'll give you one but two two i think negates someone being a sweet kind good man yes yeah, it's, it's like my boy joe didn't have like 20 murders or anything just two just two he was a sweet good man yeah 
Well, the five alligators belonging to Joe were given to the San Antonio Zoo, where their connection to his case made them instant tourist attractions. Ooh, are they still alive? Because I want to see them now. I'm sure that they're not. R.I.P. Well, as Dolores said, there was no definitive proof that Joe fed anyone to his gators, but the story of Joe Ball as the alligator man had legs. On October 4th, 10 days before Minnie's body was even found, a United Press story about Joe entitled Claim Bluebeard Fed His Victims to Pet Alligators was published as far away as New York City on page two of the Brooklyn Eagle. The story read, quote, Authorities were horrified by a new development in the murder farm case, which has been horrifying this community for a week. They had found a witness who said that Joe dissected the bodies of his victims and fed them to his pet alligators. No one knew the number of Ball's victims, and the body of only one had been found. They were all women, mostly hostesses, Ball engaged for his roadhouse 15 miles south of here, who have been disappearing periodically over the past six years. Authorities maintained the anonymity of their witness, who was afraid of Joe Ball's friends. He said that on May 24th, 1932, he saw Ball dragging the body of a woman toward the concrete pit where Ball kept his five pets, ranging in length from four to eight feet. Ball, he said, threatened to kill his wife and his children if he did not keep his mouth shut and leave the state. He obeyed. Word reached him a few days ago that Ball was dead, he continues, and he returned at once. So in addition to this witness, there was also an ominous letter from Minnie to Joe found in his belongings after his death. The letter read, quote, I am still willing to break up you and Buddy if it is the last thing I do. Uncle Henry and I are going to take you to jail as soon as he gets here. I am going to testify as to what I know. Oh, wow. Maybe that's the part where you go dun, dun, dun. Dun, dun, dun. Perfect. Yeah, so that's the story of Joe Ball, the alligator man who maybe fed people to alligators. There's no proof. Yeah, gosh, I can really... There's no proof either way. You can't really prove that he didn't feed anyone to alligators. Yeah, I could really see how this captured uh, the imagination of the filmmakers of Eaten Alive, though. Yeah, oh, for sure. So I have a couple questions for you, kind of processing all of this. Do you think he fed anyone to the alligators? Yes. Yes, why? Uh, or do you just want to believe? <laughs> no, I don't want to believe at all. No, of course not. But I feel like the way the um, the novelty of these gators is presented seems to me that Joe Ball could have, have definitely kind of gotten some thrills by feeding these women to the alligators. If anything, it was an attempt to cover up the evidence. But then why didn't he feed Minnie or Hazel to the alligators? That was his thing. I don't know. Maybe it just wasn't his thing. Maybe he just at times decided to do it. Maybe he wasn't a serial alligator feeder of people. You need to feed three people to alligators to be a serial alligator feeder of people. All right. Yeah. Well, maybe he was a technical term. Yes. I believe that that's a highly technical term. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Well, actually, my second question kind of goes along with it. So, you know, saying he fed people to the alligators means you think that he had more than just the two victims. Yeah, I do. I, I think he had more victims. He's probably feeding people left and right to these alligators. I agree, too. I wish that there were better records of, you know, all, all I found was that some people in the book were found. You know, some people weren't found. Uh, Julia's name is the only one I could find where it was a person who was missing that does not appear to have been found. But it seems like there must be more. Some of his murder counts, it's like 20 plus victims, maybe. 
question mark yeah it seems like pre i don't know like this is the 50s or what but like records having not been as thorough for certain oh they're absolutely not thorough this was i mean the late 1930s yeah yeah Yeah, it seems like like i'm not surprised that everything is not documented to the t well my last uh my last little bit maybe can help us tie it into the movie so what about this story made him such a legend i mean i could go with kind of my impressions being uh born and raised yankee from New Jersey. <laughs> I feel like uh, you know, there are certain stereotypes and I think that the movie Eaten Alive plays into a lot of these kind of stereotypes about, you know, these like backwoodsy communities where, you know, everyone's so different and things are so different. It's like this has so many elements of that. It's like a small town, you know, just alligators, which you find those in like the handful of places in this country. I don't know. To me, it, it really feels like a, a horror movie brought to life, you know, even just the, the real story. <laughs> Oh, yeah, totally. I I mean, I get that sense for sure. I mean, the first thing I think of is just like the alligator would be a perfect method with which to hide evidence of a murder. I I don't know like how long it takes for an alligator to digest their food. But it certainly seems like there's... To me, the alligators are novel and that's kind of what makes them it's so like horror movie-ish because like the alligators themselves are scary. And then on top of that, you know, there's a person involved that could actually have some intent and some motive. I do think it's important to mention, like with our uh, shark episode and Jaws, that alligators are inherently not scary they're predators that um we as humans don't often like interact with yeah and i think that's what makes them scary and the fact that you know they are they do seem very primordial they got big teeth just like the sharks they do i kind of think alligators are sort of cool i think they're just a fascinating creature i think it's important to, to mention to throw out there yeah. as an animal lover i agree <laughs> I agree. Um, and I will also say in terms of people feeding other people to animals, pigs are the big one. Yeah, so I think you've heard like cute. pigs will eat anything. But yeah, pigs are adorable. They have no ill intention. Alligators don't either, you know, generally speaking. They're just eating what they're fed. It's not their fault that this crazy dude decided to murder people. Alligators are definitely like a good like horror movie or crocodiles in, you know, the case w- which you will see in Eat a Lot. Yeah, I'll be complaining about that in the movie portion, don't you? <laughs> worry all right cool all right so i wanted to uh, mention my references the biggest one is actually this great story it's from july 2002 in the texas monthly written by michael hall it's called two barmaids five alligators and the butcher of elmendorf and i do think that this story is kind of why we now are able to separate the the man from the myth a little bit he actually took the initiative to you know travel down there and talk to people who were related at least to the people in the story and like figure out basically what what really happened so it's it's a great reference also the other website i was talking about find a grave that's uh was really where i got the best and only information that i could about his victims so right on yeah. all right well before we get into the movie i think that david you wanted to tell our listeners about studio sweden from studio sweden comes the regent a premium on-ear bluetooth pair of headphones i listen to a ton of music and podcasts and i think these headphones are rad not only do the headphones have rich bass their sound is super clear it's so good connecting to bluetooth is super easy and fast they also have great range they have over 24 hours of active battery life and 20 days of standby which is great because i've had some wireless headphones that don't hold their charge these are awesome and reliable 
Regents are comfy and stylish. I wear glasses during my waking hours and these headphones feel great with glasses. My ears don't hurt because they're designed really well. You can also change out the caps to create a personalized, modern look. Scandinavian design rules. As a bonus, there's a secret feature that's really rad, and that is that they have an auxiliary port with a cable included that makes it super flexible. They have worldwide shipping, so please visit Studio Sweden's website at studiosweden.com and use coupon code BASED for 15% off of any purchase. All right, so sit tight. We will be back in a flash with our discussion of Toby Hooper's Eaten Alive. If you were one of the millions of moviegoers who were electrified by the unbearable suspense and sheer terror of Jaws, get ready for Eaten Alive. Created by Toby Hooper, maker of the screen sensation, The Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Marty Rushton presents a new horror classic, Eaten Alive. Into this house of terror comes a handful of unsuspecting innocents. Hello? What happens to these people in Eaten Alive will give you the most chilling, terrifying 90 minutes you ever spent in a theater. Marty Rustam presents Eden Alive. Mel Ferrer, Carolyn Jones, Stuart Whitman, Neville Brand. Get ready for Eden Alive, a new horror classic. Hey, and we're back. You'll notice that we're mixing things up a little bit with our film coverage. Chelsea and I talked about it, and we wanted to give an overview of the film first and then jump into the behind the scenes and some other interesting filmmaking tidbits afterwards. What's the right word? We didn't want to bury the lead? Yeah. That's the thing, right? I want to bury the hatchet. Yes, right exactly. So Eat Alive starts, it has a cold opening that begins at Miss Hattie's brothel where Clara Wood... Can I say it begins with Robert England's crotch? Is that an accurate? Yes. Yeah. Yes. That's how it begins. It does. It does. Have it we sold you on the movie yes. yet? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Have have we? Because uh, Robert England plays Buck, who is not a nice man. He's a youngin' in this movie. He's uh he's fresh faced, no Freddy scars in sight. <laughs> And uh, yeah, he's just really creepy and gooey and nasty in this movie because he has paid he paid some money to Miss Hattie to have uh, a bit of time with Clara Wood, played by Roberta Collins, and she has recently started working for Miss Hattie, played by Carolyn Jones. And Buck is a frequent customer who, I guess he really wants to get a bit experimental with Clara. And I couldn't really think of any other word other than experimental, but it gets violent. This kind of complicates things for Clara because Miss Hattie wants to keep Buck happy. So she offers Buck um, two other women that work for her. Two for the price of one. Yes. And he's very excited about this opportunity. Unfortunately, Clara gets kicked out. She gets kicked out and she leaves. She's on her own. Clara makes her way through the Louisiana swamps to the Starlight Hotel. It's a majorly broken down place run by a character named Judd. He's played by Neville Brand and he is an interesting 
character. He has a super violent confrontation with Clara. It's interesting because Judd realizes that Clara has been working at the brothel and he becomes enraged he has some weird sex hang-ups yeah major problems with women he has problems with everybody as you will see um how the story plays out he attacks clara they have this fight down the stairs they have a fight that leads outside onto the porch where he grabs a pitchfork and repeatedly stabs her he sort of forces her to the edge of the porch which is butts up directly against the crocodile pit which, you know, we mentioned in the true crime, the alligators, they change it to a crocodile, I guess, to make it even more exotic. Well, and he has some line about it where it's like he he got this crocodile especially like shipped in. Yeah. Because like crocodiles are faster. Right. They're scarier a little more hungry, yeah. I guess. Yeah. Basically, he pokes her with a pitchfork, stabs her, stabs her again and again. He pokes her with a pitchfork. He pokes her a little bit. and she just, a uh, bit. He's just yeah. a kind man. Yeah, he prods her with a pitchfork (laughs) until she is nibbled by the (laughs) crocodile. Yeah. And so basically she, the crocodile eats her. Thanks. (laughs) Thanks to to Judd's dirty work. So later on, this really unusual family stops by the hotel to spend the night. And it's Marilyn Burns plays Faye, the wife. And Roy, the husband, is played by William Finley, who is in Phantom of the Paradise. So he he's a familiar face. And they have a daughter named Angie, played by Kylie Richards. Should we say that Marilyn Burns is also a familiar face? We're going to talk about that later. Oh, Marilyn Burns is a super familiar face because she is the, well, not to relegate her to final girl of Texas Chainsaw Massacre, but... She's the final girl of Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Yes. Oh, yeah. Yeah, Franklin's sister. <laughs> <laughs> oh, sorry. <laughs> Yeah, so so immediately there's like a cool connection to Toby Hooper in this movie, this being his second film. They have a cute little white fluffy dog named Snoopy. Uh, as soon as Snoopy's on screen, you know Snoopy's going to get eaten by that crocodile. Yeah, I don't even know why I bothered to go to doesthedogdie.com. Yeah, but I think did... by the time I got to the website, the dog was already eaten by the crocodile. However, we should have both visited doesthemonkeydie.com. Yeah, the monkey just randomly dies. He has like a, I guess... The monkey itself is pretty random too, though. It is very random. I guess it's like, oh, Judd has unusual exotic critters at the Starlight Hotel. Come check out this sleepy monkey and hungry gator. Come check out the dead monkey and then get eaten by the crocodile. Yeah, so Snoopy is eaten. The father, Angie's father, Roy, is extremely angry. Now, there's some other stuff that happens, but this is a plot summary. We are not talking about every single thing that happens in this film right now. So Roy gets mad, and I guess he wants to kind of uh, exact his revenge. So he is ready to kill that croc, and he goes out to kill the croc, but Judd loves his crocodile. Judd is like, you are not killing that croc. And in fact, my crocodile is hungry. So this is when he brings out his weapon of choice. And Chelsea, what's his weapon again? Oh, it's a scythe. Yes. I think this is the first horror movie that I've seen where a scythe is the weapon. Yeah, it's used very effectively. I think of the Grim Reaper whenever I see a scythe. And uh, yeah, Judd with that scythe is pretty scary. He already had a pitchfork. He upgrades. You know, he just kind of... Judd goes back to the hotel after killing Roy, and then he promptly ties uh, Faye to the bed. And then, of course, to show how terrible of a character he is, he chases their daughter Angie around, um, which I'm sure to feed her to the alligator. And, of course, this builds a lot of tension because uh, it kind of establishes the fact that we're probably going to see a 
revolving cast of characters comes to the hotel and promptly get eaten by the crocodile. Yeah. While the the little girl is just trapped under the house, by the way. So like yeah. he chases her under, is kind of chasing her around, and then more people pull up. Yeah. So he gets out, he just locks her underneath there. Yeah, uh, she's a bit of the MacGuffin, really, in this movie. Yeah, yeah. Which, you know, I mean, I, I liked her character. Yeah, more customers show up. And this time, though, it kind of following back to the plot line that's established at the beginning. It's Harvey Wood, played by Mel Ferrer, and Libby, played by Kristen Sinclair. And they're a father and daughter who, ha 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 ha, father and sister to Clara. And they're looking for her. Yes, I I did like this. I feel like the way the movie was kind of jumping around in the beginning, it was kind of losing me and this sucked me right back in. I was like, oh, so it, there's like a thread. Yeah, uh, Judd kind of flips out and gets really weird when Harvey shows the, the picture of Clara, though. It's like a little black and white photo. Yeah, but he he mentions about Hattie, you know, saying talk to Hattie and he's like, oh, have you did you see her there? And he won't answer that. But now they have a, a destination. They do. They have a destination. So they go to the police and there they team up with Sheriff Martin, played by Stuart Whitman, great uh, older character actor. And together they go to Miss Hattie's place and they question her. And it's interesting because you can tell that the sheriff has a very warm, friendly relationship with Miss Hattie and is familiar, of course, with the brothel and the women there. They question her and really don't get anywhere, so they um, make plans. I think the father, I think Harvey, is very tired and he's super stressed out, so he goes back to the hotel, but the sheriff and Libby, they go to do a little bit more exploring of what has happened. So, (laughs) interesting enough, poor Harvey, who's going to go rest, stumbles upon Faye, who is tied up in her hotel room, and before he's able to really do anything judd flips out and kills harvey and this is the one where it's like the neck right yeah yep. yeah so Ugh. he takes the he takes the scythe and it kind of gets stuck in his neck and he kind of pulls it out but the the scythe stuff happens outside on the porch as most of the gruesome murders do yeah. and that's so that you know judd can really quickly get them to his buddy the crocodile. Yeah. I like I was being such a turd like oh, he keeps killing people on the porch. They never show him clean up the blood. Where's all the blood? And then the very next scene was him mopping up the blood. I was like, "Oh." Yeah. I was trying to be smug. Uh, it just blew up in my face. Oh, it was good though because I feel like if they'd showed him clean up every time between murders, it would have been a little like monotonous. So, at this point, Libby is we kind of lose Libby's story here for a minute because it jumps to Buck and his girlfriend Lynette. Lynette is played by Janice Blythe, and actually she's in uh, from the uh, from from the hills have eyes from Wes Craven's The Hills Have Eyes. So Buck and his girlfriend Lynette, they uh, well Buck of course seems to be a super hothead. He starts getting into an altercation, but Sheriff Martin sort of intervenes. So then Buck and Lynette end up they leave and they go to the Starlight to get a room. And Judd has some kind of weird deal with Buck. I thought this was maybe also related to his weird views on sexuality. Yeah. It seems like Buck was very open about, you know, I mean, he was open about what he was there to do with his girlfriend. Yeah. Um, And that seemed to, I think, really bother Judd. Judd, yeah. Yeah, I think so. When they get the room together and, you know, they're... They're kind of having some foreplay. There's like a whole scene with Judd where he's by himself in his den or whatever. And it's, gosh, we could talk about this when we kind of chat about our our thoughts on on the the movie overall. But I thought like it, it was really powerful without 
really much dialogue. Yeah, and it it was kind of a mirror. He had a scene like that earlier where it was Faye and like Roy when they were upstairs talking after the dog got eaten. He was like downstairs like dusting piles of papers and like turning lights on and off and messing with the radio. Yeah. He just he's very not sane. <laughs> no. Nope, definitely not. And yeah. so, you know, there's a I thought there was a uh it was interesting that Buck and Lynette are trying to have sex and Buck is super distracted by face screams. Yes, and not only that, Judd keeps turning up the radio to like try to hide them and I think it's like those two sounds kind of clashing and unfortunately he decides to uh to investigate. He does and then uh Buck gets thrown into the crocodile pit and eaten. So yes. Lynette actually escapes. And, you know, this whole time Angie has been under the hotel and under the porch and she's been kind of crawling around. And and at a certain point, Judd has let the crocodile in below the hotel to kind of crawl around and chase her. So Libby has made her way back and, you know, she unties Faye from the bed and rescues Angie from the porch. Judd is, of course, super infuriated. And, you know, there's a moment where he nearly throws Faye into the crock pit. The crock pit. The crock pit. Is that a crock pot? The crock pit. Are, yeah. are all of our airplanes actually being flown by crocodiles? Yes. Yes. So Judd has a there's a moment where Angie is nearly rescued. Yes, it's the hole in the fence that he makes to let the crocodile in. She's able to crawl out kind of into the pit and then starts crawling up the fence that's separating like the crocodiles from the driveway. And then there's a little bit of a tug of war because Judd comes up and then Faye is on the other side and they're sort of pulling on Angie to get oh, her. Oh, it's, it's Libby. No, Faye got pretty badly injured. Libby oh, right. like has her and she's pulling on her. Yeah, yeah. And then it turns out though that Judd, of course... Um, ends up falling into the crocodile pit. They're like one on each side of the fence, but he's like on the porch reaching up to try to get her and he tumbles over the porch just as so many of his victims were thrown over the porch. Yep, and he is eaten to death at the end. <laughs> Wait, the very last scene though, the very last scene where his wooden leg flows to the surface, yeah. freeze frame, roll credits, Yes. gold. So now that we've enticed you with a rundown of the whole movie of Eaten Alive with all the good spoilers and stuff, let's talk about how this movie was made. The movie came out, it was released actually on May 13th of 1977, which was like, interestingly enough, uh, about a week and a half before Star Wars came out. Oh. Yeah, and I was, actually, we were talking about this um, earlier. Maybe I should have withheld the interesting tidbit how Robert England and Mark Hamill, a.k.a. Luke Skywalker, were roommates at the time that Star Wars was casting. And Robert England told his buddy, hey, Mark, I think you would be perfect for this science fiction movie. It sounds kind of weird, but they're casting. And he got Mark up off of his couch and told him to get to this interview. And the rest is history because, as we know, he got the role. That's just amazing. That story blew my mind when you told me it. Yeah, I thought it was pretty cool. Um, that was a story that uh, Robert told at Flashback Weekend um, a couple years ago. It was really cool. Captured my imagination. Eaten Alive was directed by the late, the great Toby Hooper of Texas Chainsaw Massacre fame. And if you all have not listened to our Chainsaw episode, please check that out out because we go into you know some of the other toby hooper films that we really like we touch upon texas chainsaw 2 which i know 
Chelsea and I both love, love that movie. Yeah. Yeah. But there are some, there's another tie to Texas Chainsaw in that the screenplay was written by Kim Hinkle, who wrote Texas Chainsaw with Toby Hooper. I remember being so excited when I saw, I was like, oh, I didn't realize Texas Chainsaw Massacre was written by a woman. Oh, wait, it's a dude named Kim. Oh, yeah. The first time I ever saw Kim Hinkle's name, I was, I thought the same thing. Yeah. yeah. I was like, what? Not a lady. Ah, sorry. Kim. But good writer. Yes. They're both from Austin and have that, uh, that. Texas filmmaking spirit. So this movie, though, was interesting in that the original concept did not originate with Toby Hooper nor Kim Hinkle. It was sort of a film for hire initially. There are two other credited screenwriters, Alvin L. Fast and Marty Rustum. Toby Hooper was brought on based on the strength of Texas Chainsaw. It was his second film. And the producer sort of already had a concept, a rough concept together. They already had a script together. However, um, both Toby and Kim worked together to greatly reshape the script to make it their own. I wonder if there's anything about the Texas connection, the fact that the true crime story it was inspired by, you know, Joe Ball took place in Texas. And then you, know, you have someone who's famous for making this Texas-based horror movie, even though, you know, this movie ended up being based in Louisiana. Yeah. Well, the other interesting thing is the fact that this was built on uh, the whole the whole movie was built on a studio set. There was absolutely zero exterior shots in the movie. It was all manufactured. I will get to that here in a couple of minutes. The film stars Neville Brand, Roberta Collins, Robert England, William Finley, Marilyn Burns, Janice Blythe, and Kyle Richards. There's kind of a mix of old and new in terms of the cast. There's some classic Hollywood actors. Neville Brand, who played Judd, is a really fascinating character actor. He was actually in World War II, and I think he killed a bunch of Nazis. It's interesting because I noticed in Judd's room, he seemed to have like a battered Nazi flag kind of like draped over a chair that he sits on. I think between that and the wooden leg, I was kind of assuming that he was a, a World War II veteran, which maybe might be related to Joe Ball being a World War One veteran. Yes. Yeah. And I think that's a just a really interesting and random connection. You know, it seems like from the real story, you know, Joe, Joe Ball may have suffered from some you know PTSD after serving in World War One and... You know, it seems like maybe that that could be the case with Judd as well. Yeah. Yeah. That's kind of real life inspiring fiction. So to lighten things up a little bit. Taglines, Chelsea. There are a couple of taglines. However, there are not as many taglines as there are alternate titles for this movie. All right. The first one. He's out there and he's got murder on his mind. No. Too vague. That's like me. I'm out there and I have murder on my mind. <laughs> what does it mean? <laughs> That's awesome. Meet the maniac and his friend. Together, they make the greatest team in the history of mass slaughter in Eaten Alive. I like that one. That's okay. I don't know how I feel about the second half. I think uh, Meet the Maniac and His Friend works well as a tagline. And then the other half of it, you would introduce in like a trailer where you're going for the title. I feel like most taglines don't have like the title of the movie as part of it. But I like the Meet the Maniac and His Friend. I might be biased because that's on the cover of our Blu-ray. Yeah, yeah. I do like that. I like, the, I like that first bit. All right. And the last one. You check in alive, but check out dead. It makes absolutely no sense, but I kind of love it. I want to have like a collection of movies that uh, that can go along with that. You can have Psycho <laughs> in there. You can have Motel Hell. Yeah, Motel Just Hell. Just all, yep. all of the Check It Alive, Check Out Dead movies. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah, totally. All right, so let's talk about all the titles of this movie. 
I was gonna say the first one is Motel Hell. Oh wait, no, that's a totally different movie. Yeah, and actually, this has a sort of an unofficial tagline because there is a poster that has this on it. So it's horror hotel. Its beds become bloodbaths. I like it. Uh, it's also known as horror hotel massacre. Of course, I prefer horror hotel to horror hotel massacre. Yeah, I feel like that third word, the alliteration's not so good. And then, of course, eaten alive, legend of the bayou. Murder on the Bayou. Murder on the Bayou, way better than Legend. Legend of the Bayou feels like it should be a totally different movie. Yeah. 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 I feel like we saw that. Wait, what's that movie that we both saw and loved? Beasts Beasts of of the the Southern Southern Wild. Wild. (laughs) Yes, a beautiful movie. Yes, yes. Legends of the Bayou sounds like it should be Beasts of the Southern Wild. Yeah, right on. Right on. Yeah. So, yeah, between the legend and the murder on the Bayou, the murder on the Bayou is stronger. Yeah, or at least it's more fitting. Yeah, it is more fitting. And then Starlight Slaughter, you know, because it's the starlight. I do like that one. Yeah, it's all right. Although, I I don't know. I feel like you kind of need to see the name of the hotel to get the starlight because it's like, could be like a science fiction horror movie. That's the thing. I like the contrast of like, starlight sounds like, I don't know, like Sailor Moon or something. It's like the combination of that and slaughter. Yeah. I like it. Wait, is that the John Carpenter, Jeff Bridges, Karen Allen movie? No, that's Starman. Oh, that's right. That's right. That's right. Yeah. It's it's just fascinating that this movie has so many alternate titles. You know, horror movies are, are pretty notorious for having multiple titles, but this one has a bunch. Yeah. Do you think Eden Alive is the best of those, or do you think like any of those are better? Actually, I think Eden Alive is the best. I like it. Yeah. I think of like a cannibal movie, though, when I think of Eden Alive. There's like a, there is an actual cannibal movie from the 80s, I think, that's called Eden Alive! Exclamation mark. Um, so the exclamation mark is why it's okay to have two of them. Yeah, I guess so. The body count. We talked about the, you know, the true crime and the fact that there were what, uh, two women confirmed. Two confirmed. Yes. Yep. There are seven bodies in this movie. Five of them are humans. One of them, as we mentioned, is a monkey, and one of them is a dog. However, the monkey just randomly passes away of seemingly natural causes. It it could be old age. It could be an old monkey. We don't know. Yeah. So uh, I don't know if that counts as body count, but it was still uh, a little bit disturbing. It was. Actually, the, the monkey came from... Toby Hooper had really liked the way um, the animals in the Andromeda strain, the Michael Crichton adaptation, how I guess they had performed in that movie. And so he had hired the same animal trainers. And this... it's int- He just liked that a monkey could play dead. So yeah. So he put it in the movie. He, he liked the way the monkeys kind of like fell asleep or like slowly passed away or whatever. So he wanted that sort of movement to the monkey in his movie. And also the way the alligator moved, though it was it was they actually had a animal wrangler crocodile. Well, sorry, we're we're going to do this for the rest of the discussion. I'm yeah, sure. it's, so, <laughs> it's the, very okay, confusing. So the one thing that I keep in mind, I think of Crocodile Dundee every single time you've heard me say crocodile, it's because I'm thinking Crocodile Dundee because of Australia because it's not a a North American reptile. I think I read in something about the movie though. It might have just been the back of the Blu-ray. It was like specifically a Nile crocodile. So I know you have the yes. the Australia connection, but this is a Nile crocodile. Yeah, but like there, I mean, Crocodile Dundee is the only movie title I can think of that has the word crocodile in it. So I'm like, yes, it's croc, it's croc, it's croc, Crocodile Dundee, Crocodile Dundee. And it's an off. <laughs> Sorry, Australian listeners, I try not to do any sort of accents. I think you do a decent Australian accent. All I say is fa- fosters, like in the commercial for the blooming. I can't even do blooming onion with the accent. So yes. yeah, I just uh, I can't. That's okay. Yeah, the 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 monkey is 
out of out of this entire movie, it's the most random thing. It is, but I also feel like the like monkey screeching noises, that sound to me is just like pure horror movie. And I don't know why, but there's something about it that uh just yeah. Cause that was kind of in the the first couple because the monkey dies pretty early on, but yeah, like when he's killing Clara in the beginning, you do have the like monkey screeching in the background and the shots of the monkey jumping around the cage, and it's ugh, man. Well, and it's poor Angie, the little girl, notices that the monkey dies. Yeah, right before uh, her dog gets eaten. Yeah, <laughs> poor little girl. Aww. And she gets chased under the house and just spends the rest of the movie being chased around under the house. Yep. Yeah, it's uh, it's really sad. It's just, it's just so sad and kind of unfortunate. All right, so you know, we talk about like the creatures. The crocodile is a big character. We have these families that visit the hotel, and we also have the character of Judd. It's interesting in how Judd and the atmosphere of the Starlight Hotel are really their own characters. Like, they really create what's the right word? I mean, as the antagonist of the movie, he's like really the focus. Yeah, yeah, for sure. There's some great documentaries on the Arrow Blu-ray of Eaten Alive that um, they interview Toby Hooper, and he was talking about how they were looking at scouting locations. They actually looked at Tippi Hedren's Lion Ranch, which, you know, she was a, a famous actor, and her home was full of exotic animals. And there's actually a really good documentary, which we'll include in the show notes, that is all about how all these wild beasts, these lions, these tigers and everything, roamed free and, like, would just randomly, like, injure people and claw them. At, at her house? Yes. Like, all in, all in her house. So she is the lead in The Birds. So she's the, the lead. She worked with Hitchcock. So she's uh, Melanie Griffith's mother. So Melanie Griffith grew up in kind of an interesting household where... I did not know that. Really? Yeah. And Tippi Hedren just... They, they had all these ex- exotic animals and they would just roam around. So Toby Hooper was location scouting and he went to their house thinking that maybe they could film film the movie there. Did she have alligators? She did. Oddly enough, she did not have alligators, but Toby Hooper is being escorted through the house and their kind of like tour guide or their assistant tells them to be very careful and to not open any doors because there, you know, there could be something like a line behind one of the doors. And sure enough, uh, Toby Hooper (laughs) opens the door and he says, and damned if I didn't open a door and there was facing like the MGM lion and it was looking at me and I closed the door. Oh my god. She's like the craziest hoarder ever. <laughs> yeah. Oh my god. That's kind of like our house except it's just a, a cat. You just open every door and there's a cat behind it. Uh and the movie is called Roar. So it's a kind of a documentary about all of these exotic animals that they had at their house. We need to watch this. Yeah. Yeah, I think it may have gotten a re-release within the last couple of years. So they decided to film the whole thing on a soundstage. And it was actually like an older soundstage that had been used in a number of different productions, like Sunset Boulevard, a bunch of like those eras of film. And the water tank was already built, so they were able to use that for the all the crocodile scenes and just built the house. And they were able to pump in all of the smoke. And Toby Hooper said that because it was the 70s, they were using quite the non-toxic sorts of fake fog that they're able to use now. So everyone came down with bronchitis. and I was going to say, that's non-toxic with like air quotes, right? Yeah. 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 Uh, but yeah, everyone everyone got kind of sick after oh my all gosh, these geez. days of, uh, of shooting the movie. 
one of the pluses to filming on the soundstage was that Toby Hooper was able to kind of maintain his vision of the movie being like a grim fairy tale. And I think that for sure, like Judd's character, he seems sort of like, uh, I don't know, I think of uh, the Hansel Gretel story where he's a little like luring people to this home, uh, to this hotel in this case. And then instead of like cooking them and eating them, he's feeding them to his, his crocodile. Yeah, I don't know. Maybe we should say this when we're discussing the movie, but I wonder if anyone's just gone there and stayed the night and left and just been like, A-okay. It must be, right? Mu- yeah, yeah. Or else he would not have been in business long enough for like people to find him. Like if everyone got eaten by the crocodile. Right, yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's just unfortunate for all of these people within yeah. the same two-day span. I mean, he could have. Maybe he never fed anyone until like the first victim that we see in the movie. Uh, maybe. I mean, maybe Clara's the first. She was warned by the, the that person not to mention uh, that she worked for Miss Hattie's. <laughs> it's true. But she didn't mention it. He just, like, guessed it. Yeah. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yep. All right. What do you think? Should we talk about the thoughts on the movie now? Let's talk about it. Do you want to go first? No. Why don't you go first? Ladies first. No. Um. Uh. Yeah. What do you think of this movie? So I've liked it more the more I've thought about it. In the moment, it's there are certain aspects of this movie that were hard for me to stomach. I think that this is not a movie if you're looking for strong female characters or like a, a heroine. And I feel kind of similar to Texas Chainsaw Massacre about this, where, you know, although you have your final girl who's able to survive and live at the end, and in this movie, you have two of them. You have Faye and Libby, well, and Angie, so technically three. Yeah. Um, you know, they they don't do much planning and fighting and strategizing. It's more like screaming and flailing and being lucky. And I feel like, you know, that was true in this movie and that was true in, in Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Um, I, might, I might get some hate for this, but I feel like, you know, when you think of, you know, a horror movie that we both love, Nightmare on Elm Street, I'll be the one to bring it up this time. <laughs> um, All right. Um. And you think of Nancy making her plans and setting her booby traps. And it's it's really cool. Whereas this, it's like they stumble into the situation and then they kind of stumble out of it. Yeah, that's and it fair. Just, it, it wasn't super satisfying, you know, in the moment of watching it. And I think especially because, you know, the other kind of female roles in this movie, they're, um, you know, very much like sex objects. Yeah, yeah. But I, I did really like the character of Judd. I thought he was interesting as a villain. I think, you know, he kind of fits into that category that I love where it's like he's not totally nefarious, you know, he's just got something going on in his head that is like making him do this. And I, I found that really interesting. I think we talked about the the two scenes where he's just like weirdly cleaning up downstairs. And it's kind of that cross between like being a bit of like a doddering old man. And then suddenly he has like a scythe and it's, you know, it's, it's crazy. I like that. I, I love the crocodile as a almost as kind of its own own character kind of lingering in the shadows. It feels almost like a, a monster in the movie more than just an animal you see little glimpses of it but you know not not much so there are parts that I like there are parts that I didn't like I'm really interested in actually seeing it a second time I feel like seeing it a second time would really cement my opinion but I feel like it just depends on on what you what you are looking for in a movie and it's it's not a movie if if you want your protagonist to have a lot of of personality and drive versus your antagonist I wish they had done more with with that plot of Libby trying to find her sister. 
Yeah. I think that that was almost overshadowed by all of the other characters that were thrown in. I don't even know why that other family is even there. Uh, like Faye and Roy and Angie. Um, yeah, it's a know. little weird. They're very yeah. odd. They, they, you definitely like are wondering what's up with their family. Yeah, yeah. And I feel like it might have almost been a, a better movie if they had narrowed the focus to just Libby and, and Clara and their father and maybe not even shown Judd, you know, killing Clara off the bat. Because I feel like his character is so ripe for being that like conflicted killer where he's like driven by something other than just the pure desire to kill. But by having your introduction to him be like him snapping at the idea of Clara working at you know this brothel at one point and just killing her and feeding her to the alligator like right off the bat within the first minute of you being introduced to his character, I feel like you lose all chance of giving him more nuance. Whereas I feel like you know he he is a nuanced character, but it's just kind of lost. Yeah. Yeah. What What did you think of the movie? So this was the first time I had seen the entire movie, but a couple of years ago I tried watching it. Maybe it was on Amazon or something, and it was a terrible like four three ratio, not a good transfer at all. And I got about three or four minutes in, and and just wasn't feeling it. We ended up buying the Arrow Blu-ray, which has been like majorly cleaned up, and I think that the the presentation of it really helped a lot. This is definitely a a grindhouse style film. You know, it's Toby Hooper's like sophomore movie. I guess his personal perspective of it until he was nearly finished was a was a gun for hire but then he mentions in an interview how he found out about two-thirds of the way through that he was the only reason why the movie got financed so he could have had a lot more say in the movie but i i liked the way it turned out i agree with you chelsea that as i've thought about the movie since we watched it the other night it's grown on me even more like i like the art direction and the fact that it is built on a stage and it has a really unique look and and judd as a um as just like a normal human but killer he's very scary there's something that stood out in one of the the interviews on the documentary the makeup effects guy uh, Craig Reardon. Well, I didn't know this. He created the sloth makeup in the Goonies, but he has done so much work over so many great pictures. One of his quotes was, he says that there's never been a monster design that can compete with the human face. And I think Judd sort of personifies that extremely well. You know, we talk about him alluding to having been in the war, having been a veteran of World War II, and some of the like artifacts are in his study. You don't really get that history in the movie and maybe like, real life and behind the scenes kind of deepens i guess my appreciation of it but i uh, i thought he was a terrifying villain it is difficult though to see all of these these women go through the the grinder it's very grimy for sure i mean for the most part i mean claire is the only woman who's actually killed right yeah it's like there are three women who serve well four women who survive yeah three women and angie little girl oh you're right who was i i think i mentioned this while we were watching the movie angie seems to be the the most badass female character in the movie with her her escaping of both judd and the crocodile under the house you know she's uh she's a survivor oh yeah yeah Definitely. Gosh, yeah. This is one where it uh, it was a little grimy watching it, but I enjoyed it. And then like just a couple days since then, I've I've it's really kind of stewed and settled with me. So well, and you had the benefit of watching the behind the scenes, which I think really does add add a lot to a movie 
getting that. So I, I may partake in a couple of those documentaries. I'm really interested in that interview with Robert England. I like him. Yeah, yeah. The the Robert England one is great. He thought it was a lot of fun. The one thing that I think he got out of it was getting to act with some of these older actors. He has a quote where he's like, I'd rather not hang out with Rob Lowe. I'd rather hang out with somebody like, I don't know, Spencer Tracy or somebody like that, for instance. The older timey actors he had already had a great appreciation for Neville Brand's career. He knew all about him and his history with the war and about getting to work with Carolyn Jones, who, I mean, she was Morticia Adams in Adams Family. I mean, come on. You can't get, get much cooler than that. So, yeah, he... he uh... <laughs> it was funny though because you know you mentioned Robert England he says his only disappointment um, he was really bummed that they couldn't get a truly animatronic alligator or a crocodile in this case so he kind of really tried to sell it in this death scene by moving and flailing a lot to get the performance out of the crocodile puppet or whatever that they really really couldn't uh, get from just the mechanics of it good i i like robert england but he really he really sold himself as being the jerky buck in this movie so it was, it was satisfying watching him get get eaten by an alligator or yeah. crocodile i mean <laughs> see i i told you we'd keep messing it up and we've delivered on that promise yeah it was interesting so there was a part that they they never ended up filming but it was in one of the the versions of the script that kim hinkle and toby hooper worked on and that was uh that buck had a gang and they end up kind of just, I guess, like cutting that for probably budget and time reasons, I'm sure. The movie was so chock full of, of characters and side stories. I think that that might have been a, a step too far. Oh, yeah, totally. I know you mentioned that the, the crocodile was kind of frightful, right? Yeah. And I thought that was good. I liked the way they kind of worked around the limits. You think about, um, I guess, Steven Spielberg with Jaws and the shark and the shark never worked. And sometimes that's the best thing, trying to use what you have and, and be creative. And, you know, being being minimal in what you show, I think, can be especially effective if you're talking about a kind of scary monster animal where if it's not going to look super real, maybe it's better to cover it in a fine mist, you know, so you just see little bits of the scale. Yeah. As we kind of roll, wind down our conversation, um, the one thing about the, the, the crocodile prop that I thought was hilarious, Toby Hooper was talking about, you know, the puppet, and he said that the crocodile really didn't do much it could open its mouth and they had created the legs so it was like like a quacky duck toy is what he calls it where the legs are in like little opposite directions and they spin what yeah to rather than like <laughs> looking like real legs they just kind of rotate and flip to That's make it look awesome. like he's crawling oh my god it was made of like this type of sponge and one of the crew had forgotten to pull the crocodile puppet out of the tank overnight and so the rubber absorbed a large percentage of the water in the tank and so the crocodile soaked up so much that it was about eight times bigger than its normal size so you know those little like toys that you soak in water overnight and they turn giant that's kind of like what happened with the puppet i love that that's awesome yeah so there's a lot of stuff about this movie. The documentary was fascinating. So if you all are into Toby Hooper, I highly recommend the Arrow Blu-ray because it's got a lot of great stuff on it. And the picture looks amazing. It, it looks great. It looks really good. So I think uh, what you're saying is we really need to watch this movie at some point again to 
you know, reevaluate it. Yes, yes, we will definitely watch it again. Yeah. Well, uh, thanks for joining me on this adventure of eating alive. I was super excited. So this actually, the the idea for the movie and the Joe Ball story started with our Patreon, and we had um, teamed this up against the entity and the entity one so which means that you all get to listen to us talk about eating alive yes exactly so if you are not a patreon member and want to hear about the entity the one that did win you should definitely join us over there we have you know everything from a dollar to like five bucks right yeah five bucks is the highest and it gets you some some goodies but even the lowest tier which is one dollar gets access to bonus content i'm quite excited for april 1st because it looks like uh chicago is winning the poll so we'll be talking about cook county jail's murderous row and the amazing movie that i love chicago uh there might be singing in this bonus episode you'll I'm, need to pay to find out yep i'm practicing <laughs> i'll sing i'm not yeah. a bird yeah i'm not did, a fear did you have it coming i had it coming <laughs> it, it's gonna be a good one yeah it'll be a lot of fun all right well um chelsea do you have a now plane I do. I think I talked about this a little bit in our cult Facebook group, but I'm currently reading The Stranger Beside Me, and I like rolled over in bed and had to wake you from near slumber to to tell you this exciting news when I got to the passage in the book, but... Uh, apparently Ted Bundy was in the Utah State Prison at the same time as Gary Gilmore. So, uh, wow. Yeah. So I thought now would be a good time to, to do this as now playing because it means that I can uh, read you this passage. So Ted Bundy was extradited to Utah to be put on trial for attempted kidnapping. And at the time he was you know, in, in contact with Ann Rule. I'm pretty much constant contact with Ann Rule over the whole course of this. But you know, this is from her book. And the excerpt is, although Ted's extradition arraignment on November 24th, 1976 had drawn a flock of reporters, he was not the most famous prisoner in Utah State Prison that week. It was fellow convict Gary Gilmore, a convicted murderer with a death wish who made the cover of Newsweek on November 29th. Compared to Gary Gilmore, Ted was decidedly second string news. And this is a quote from a letter that Ted Bundy wrote to Ann Rule. Quote, The Gilmore situation grows curiouser and curiouser. Have seen him on occasion in the visiting room with Nicole. I'll never forget the deep love and anguish in her eyes. Gilmore, however, is misguided, unstable, and selfish. The media preys on this Romeo and Juliet saga. Tragic, irreconcilable. Wow. Is that not nuts? Yeah. Man, I just, yes, seeing that having, you know, we we just did our episode on the Executioner song and Gary Gilmore. I just, I never made the connection in, in my Gary Gilmore research. And it was just an interesting coincidence. And yeah, I, I've been really devouring this book. I've had a number of terrifying dreams reading The Stranger Beside Me right before going to sleep at night. Uh, weird, like some scary dreams. And then also some dreams where I'm on trial for murder. I don't know what my subconscious is telling me, but uh, maybe it's telling me to stop reading this book before bed. Anyway, uh, what's your now playing, David? Oh, uh, before we do the now playing, do you uh, remember that one time we uh, bought some some stuff that was used in the filming of Extremely Wicked, Shockingly Evil and Vile? Yeah, that's another one. If you're in our cult, you've already seen. Um, but we we went to the uh, prop sale for the Ted Bundy movie that just filmed in Cincinnati. And I, I bought a University of Washington uh, pennant that we're going to have hanging in the podcast studio soon. And I bought a vintage television. Didn't the 
television technically come from like 1985 though, which is it did a bit after a bit after things done. Yes, David bought a television. We also bought some snail candles. We bought weird old candles. We bought a, a platter, a whiskey bottle, a can of Colt 45, a like flyer from like a some fake college thing. Oh, a menu that I think we're going to do a giveaway for. I need to get a frame for it. Yeah. But it's like a of the time restaurant menu for an actual like restaurant in Cincinnati. Yeah. Yeah. It was so much fun. And we got our picture taken in the tan VW bug that they used in the movie. Oh, yeah. Amazing. And that's on Instagram. Yeah. Check that out. Yes. But uh, my, my other now plane, I'm prepping for Horror Hound that we will be doing together. We both are actually. Chelsea is awesome and is doing a lot of work for that, too. So I've been drawing movie monsters non-stop uh while drawing monsters we've been watching the tv show monsters from the 80s that was a syndicated anthology series and it is on amazon prime so we've been kind of chewing through those um that's all i got for current stuff i thought you were gonna say we're watching the tv series cougar town (laughs) nope i don't know what you're talking about yeah he won't fess up to it but i heard him laughing so uh, do you have any coming soons? My coming soon? I don't know when we're going to watch it, but I really want to watch the new Wrinkle in Time movie that came out last week. I just It's not going to be in the cards for us until after Horror Hound because things are so crazy. But that's that's the next, uh, at least in theaters, movie that I'm, I'm really looking forward to. I love that book when I was growing up and the, the trailers have just looked amazing. I think the visuals are just going to be fantastic. So someday. What yep. about you? What's your uh, coming soon? It's all art, all the time. Yes, that is what's on our minds. So I'm going to edit this episode and get it out. And uh, then we're not going to think about the podcast for the next week because yeah. we are prepping and if you, like crazy. If you, yeah, if you listen to this after Horror Hound already happens, which is March 23rd through 25th at the Sharonville Convention Center in Cincinnati, we will have uh, our lab creature booth there selling all of the spooky art. Yeah, if you're listening to this afterwards, you're going to be like, what? Just look at, at lab creature on Instagram and I don't really have much. I want to see The Strangers too. I want to see The Wrinkle in Time. I want to see Veronica. Yes, I've uh, a couple people have seen it and reported back that it's it's good and scary. So yeah, I'm looking forward to that too. But yeah, as David said, the the big thing is getting through the next week. So if we're a little bit absent on social media, that's why. <laughs> or if I'm a little absent on our cult of. I apologize. I may like your stuff, but I may not jump in and comment as much. We'll give you a, a pass for the next week, and then we're going to come after you. I'm going to sleep for the next week after no, that. No, you're going to sleep for the week after that, for sure. <laughs> All right. Well, on that note, let us wrap this up with our social media, at Based on a True Crime on Instagram. At True Crime Based on Twitter. Find us on Facebook, at Based on a True Crime Podcast. But most importantly, because Zuckerberg does not like the pages so much we have a discussion group please join us it's a quick approval process you can get to it through our facebook page for the podcast it is cult of based on a true crime it is a ton of fun yeah and we're in the process of planning our one year anniversary extravaganza that's coming up i guess end of may so we've got a thread on there where people have been giving us ideas and we're just going to incorporate every single idea mash it all up and then vomit out a giant episode for you guys so it, it'll be a treat so join our cult and tell us what you want or you could email us based on true crime at gmail.com you could use the contact us form on our website based on a true crime.com 
Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe on iTunes. We are three ratings away from 100. So please do that and make me very happy. And our Patreon, we have goodies. We have an exclusive bonus episode every month. Yes, and next month. Either way, it's going to be a good one, actually. The the voting is between Chicago or Bernie, which I, I saw that in theaters, and it's, it's an excellent movie, and it's a very interesting story. So maybe you feel very strongly that we should cover Bernie. It's losing the vote right now. You got to sign up. You got to give us money and then vote. Yep, yeah, and yeah. you get your own private RSS feed. It'll automatically download as soon as we publish those episodes. That's yeah. really cool. You just sign to the app once and you send us your address so that we can send you stuff. We got stuff. We do. Yeah. Well, yeah. is there one more thing that our listeners should remember? Yeah. Remember, death is but a door. And time is but a window. We'll be back. <laughs> <laughs>